Welcome back to another underwhelming episode of Rock and Roll History, the podcast where we stage dive headfirst in all the hits, misses, and often overlooked songs and stories throughout the history of rock and roll. I'm your host, Herman Melville. But who cares? Come on, everybody. Let's go rock and roll. Welcome back, everyone. I'd like to wish you, all my faithful, loyal listeners and new listeners alike, a very happy new year. With the new year comes new beginnings, a time to reset the clocks, a time for new resolutions, and as you may have noticed by the title of this episode, a time for redos of awful podcasts. Now, you may be wondering why I'm choosing to revisit this first episode of the show and why so soon. Well, the answer is quite simple. That first episode was bad, and I mean bad. It sucked. It was just so terrible, and it was getting a ton of listens, and I feel like it was scaring away new listeners of the show. So I've decided to take it down and revisit the episode and give it somewhat uh, of a more coherent telling that today's subject so very much deserves. With this new episode comes a new approach at my attempt at having a podcast, a new chapter in the rock and roll history book, if you will. And now I vow that I will spend more time on the show. And I also vow to you that I will, at the very least, get one episode out per month. Twelve episodes can't be that hard, right? Right? Well, you see, I really want to get this thing going for you. You stuck with me all this time, and it's the least I can do to show my appreciation and adoration for you all. So as always, thank you from the bottom of my heart, and I really do mean that. I love you guys, man. Thanks for sticking with me. Now, as we're approaching this new year, I revisit many of the old episodes, and upon listening, I just heard so many ghastly, straight-up embarrassing errors. Amateur hour over here. I mean, look, I'm not one to harp on past mistakes, but these are just blatant editing errors, so I decided that I may just go back and clean those episodes up a little bit. Once I fix them, I'll just re-upload the files in place of the old episodes. However, if there's anything you want me to revisit in a future episode, or something that is historically inaccurate and needs to be reapproached, or if there's something specifically you would like me to do an episode on, please do not hesitate to reach out and let me know. You can contact me at any time at rnrhistorypod at gmail.com. That is Romeo November Romeo rnrhistorypod at gmail.com. Or you can always visit our website at www.rockandrollhistory.com. I have all the contact information there, and that is also where I store all my show notes, references, and music that I feature on the show. You can even leave comments on each episode on the site, a feature I hope you start utilizing. I also hope this new year uh, we become more engaged together. With your interaction, this show can grow to new heights, and I think having a place online where the world can share its love for rock and roll together can be a wonderful thing. And I know it's a lot to ask since you're already so kindly giving me so much of your valuable time uh, just by listening to the show, but I think growing a community together will make this special and uh, worthwhile endeavor for us all. Hopefully 2023 can be the start of something wonderful and new. Okay. We got all that out of the way, and I know I've reached rambling territory here, but there's just one more little thing I need to address, and it's something I quite frankly have been kind of avoiding. The discussion of monetizing this show. One of the reasons I've been pushed this podcast back on my priority list is not because I don't love doing it, 
It's not because uh, I don't love creating these shows for you, but because in this day and age, and time is just extremely valuable. Lord knows it's hard to get by these days, and so free time is getting more and more limited. So I'd like to propose the idea to you guys before I go ahead and do anything official. I believe attempting to monetize this show might be beneficial for both of us. For me, it will be able to put the money I earn back into the show and it will justify me spending so much time on it. I don't intend to make some kind of huge profit from this show, but if it could pay for itself, it will improve in quality while doing so. I think you will get a better, more consistent product and we both will be much happier. But of course, I will ultimately leave this up to you. If you want me to keep going with the show as is, I will. Otherwise, I'll have to re-edit the show and remove and change a lot of the uh, <coughs> soundtrack. But because you have stuck with me all this time, I value your opinions. So please speak up and let me know. Or forever hold your peace. And suffer through 20-second ads once a month. So please voice your opinions now. I would love to hear from you. All right, enough of this blabbering. On with the show! Today's episode takes place sometime between December 29, 1957 and January 6, 1958. Dwight D. Eisenhower and Richard Nixon were president and vice president, respectively. The Los Angeles Dodgers and the San Francisco Giants would be soon playing their first Major League Baseball game out in California as Sputnik 1 comes crashing back down to earth while Gibson Guitars issues the first U.S. patent for the Flying V Guitar, taking electric guitars into the space age. And of course, our old friend Elvis Presley was recently drafted into the U.S. Army. According to Biography.com, dodging his civic duty was never a consideration for the singer, and despite his quote-unquote king of rock and roll status, Presley had gladly set aside his crown and marched forward to pick up his induction notice, which I think is really quite fitting for our episode today. This being the first episode of the new and improved series, I can't think of a better place to start than with this standard classic. This song is the epitome of rock and roll. The sound and style of this number would go on to shape rock and roll music and change the way people not only play guitar, but even just the way they even just look at the guitar for all time. It's an absolute game changer. This song I'm talking about is of course, none other than Johnny Be Good by the one and only Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry is the true king of rock and roll. Some people consider it to be Elvis, but here at Rock and Roll History, we say those people are wrong. If Elvis is king, then Chuck Berry is God. With Elvis figuratively putting down his crown at this point in time, it's almost poetic uh, with the timing and release of this song. Chuck Berry's singing, guitar playing, his plain and simple way of approaching music is something that single-handedly not only changed the shape of rock and roll, but changed the shape of music history and world history for that matter. And it's something that is still being emulated by guitar players everywhere to this very day. Today's episode focuses on the moment rock and roll enters into that legend status in human consciousness. So today's episode takes place between December 1957 and January 1958. It's not exactly clear when the exact official date is, but recording sessions were going on at this time, and it's one of these very sessions that Chuck Berry's spectacular classic, Johnny B. Good, was recorded, forever changing world history for the greater good, or evil, depending on who you ask. 
But before we dive into those sessions and discover the impact of this perfect rocking song, let's run that clock on back a bit and hop into our old trusty time machine and punch in the date, October 18th, 1926, and find out who our rock and roll savior, Chuck Berry, really is. Charles Edward Anderson Berry was born October 18, 1926, at 6.59 a.m., the fourth child of Henry Berry and Martha Bell. Some sources state he was born in San Jose, California, and his family moved to St. Louis when he was very young, but I don't think that's true, and Chuck himself says he was born in Old St. Lou, so we'll stick with that. So he grew up in a middle-class household at 2520 Good Avenue in St. Louis, Missouri. His mother, Martha, was certified principal for public school, and his father, Henry, was a contractor and a deacon at their local Baptist church. His family participated in the choir at the church, and this was some of Chuck's earliest exposure to music. At home, Chuck would listen to mostly blues and country-western music on the radio, but he particularly loved the smoothness and clarity of Nat King Cole's voice. And he was a fan of guitar stylings of guys like Charlie Christian, T-Bone Walker, and he got a kick out of the novelty of Louis Jordan. All influences he would internalize and use as fuel for his future endeavors. Chuck would also take music classes while attending school. In 1941, when he was about 15 years old, his high school put uh, on a talent show. Chuck entered into the showcase and chose to sing a rendition of the song Confessin' the Blues by Jay McShann. He was accompanied by a friend who played guitar, and after the performance, he was greeted with a thunderous applause. And from then on, Chuck just needed to be on stage. After the performance went over so well, he was filled with a newfound excitement for music and he decided he wanted to play the guitar himself. He found that if he just learned a few chords and incorporated some rhythm changes that he could play many if not most of the popular songs of the day. It should also be noted that he had a friend named Ira Harris who showed him a few tricks and techniques on guitar that would go on to mold the foundation of Chuck Berry's playing. So Ira, wherever you are, thank you so very, very much. So playing all this music, however, didn't quite keep Chuck out of trouble. Despite his family being fairly well off and him having a good home life and nice upbringing, he of course found his way, as kids do, into some mischief. At the age of 17, while attending high school, Chuck and a couple of his friends decided to head out west to see the beautiful golden shores of California. Along the way, they ran out of money, so they used a broken pistol they had and robbed a few convenience stores so they could afford to eat a few snacks and fill up their gas tank. Then, of course, their car broke down, so they flagged down a driver for help and then used that same busted gun to steal the dude's car so they could have a way to get back home. Of course they got caught, and although Chuck said it was just some adolescent's hijinks, uh, they threw the book at him and gave him the maximum sentence of 10 years in prison. He was convicted and put in the Intermediate Reformatory for Young Men in Algoa, uh, near Jefferson City, Missouri. Once he was locked up, to pass time, Chuck got into boxing to stay in shape, and since his love for music never wavered, he formed a singing quartet. The group got so good that the reformatory even let them go outside of the detention facility to perform. After three years of this, and some good behavior, I presume, Chuck was released in 1947 on his 21st birthday. 
About one year later in 1948, Chuck got married and had his first child. To support his family, he took two jobs, one at an automobile factory and the other was doing maintenance around the apartment building his new family was living in. Also during this time, he was training to be a beautician at the Poro College of Cosmetology and he eventually became a hairdresser. Can you imagine? There's some people out there who are saying, yeah, Chuck Berry did cut my hair. <laughs> that is both hilarious and amazing. Anyway, he did well as a hairdresser. So well, in fact, that by 1950, he had enough to buy a small three-room brick cottage with a bath. It was located at 3137 Whittier Street in St. Louis. This house is known today as the Chuck Berry House and is listed on the National Record of Historic Places. And it's apparently now a place that I need to go visit. So by day he was a beautician, but at night he was a musician. He still had that burning passion for music, so in the evenings he would play with local bands in the clubs in and around the St. Louis area. He would use this as an opportunity to make some extra income, but also he used this opportunity to fine-tune his own signature guitar style and develop the showmanship skills he would become universally loved for. By 1953, Chuck began playing with the Johnny Johnson Trio, led by none other than a man named Johnny Johnson. He was a very well-versed jazz and blues musician and who would later become known as a pioneer rock and roll piano player while working alongside Barry. Typically, the trio would play blues and ballads for their predominantly black audiences. However, they had some country stuff up their sleeve on standby so that they could pull it out in front of the, you know, the off chance that they would play in front of a wider crowd. Chuck said one night curiosity got the best of him and he asked Johnny Johnson to play some of the white country stuff to see how the black crowd would react. And react they did. At first the crowd laughed and howled at it as it was all so hilarious to them. Country Western was considered white hillbilly music at the time. Word began to quickly spread around town that there was a black hillbilly who was playing down at the Cosmo. People would come from all around to get in on the joke and see it all for themselves. However, after a while it kind of grew on the audience. And wouldn't you know it, the band began to get shouts from the audience mid-set. Things like, hey, play that white hillbilly stuff. And when Chuck would bust it out, the audience would get more rowdy and dance along. And it seemed to all that this was actually the start of something very special. And so there you have it, folks. Rock and roll began as a joke poking fun at white people. And I just think that's incredible. Chuck said in his autobiography, and I quote, If you want to see something that is far out, watch a crowd of colored folk, half high, wholeheartedly doing the hoedown barefooted. Sounds like a good time to me. So now Chuck began to get himself a pretty decent following, and the Johnny Johnson band was now being billed under the name the Chuck Berry Combo. And Berry, having good business instincts, thought the next logical step would be for him to make some records. But he didn't quite know exactly how to go about doing that. Well, actually, to be completely honest, some record collectors in the 80s did in fact discover some evidence that he did indeed have a couple records under his belt at this point, but nothing substantial. It was two songs with a group called Joe Alexander and the Cubans. Uh, I'll have the link to the Discogs page on my website. I can't find any audio and currently this record is for sale for $300. So if anyone wants to give me that money or send me the audio, please? Okay, but so Chuck wanted to record and he needed to find a way to do it properly. So he began to think and then he got an idea on a Friday night. It was a Friday in May of 1955. Coincidentally, the same year Marty McFly went back to the future. 
Uh, no. Okay. Uh, so it's May of 1955, and now 28-year-old Chuck Berry and some friends drove up to Chicago to see one of his heroes play, Muddy Waters. He wanted to make records just like Muddy did, and so he thought the best way to find out how to go about doing that was just to ask the men directly himself and get him pointed in the right direction. He said he paid 50 cents to get in the show and clamored to get inside, and he'll never forget Muddy closing out the set uh, playing Mojo Working. I mean, man, can you just imagine that scene? A young Chuck Berry standing there in the crowd while Muddy Waters is on stage jamming out. That is some grade A imagery right there. Pretty sweet. So anyway, one of his friends managed to corner Muddy, and he asked for his autograph. And so now Chuck had this chance and very politely said something along the lines like, Muddy, hi, I'm Charles Berry. It's so nice to meet you. I play this jokey, hokey, white, hillbilly stuff, and I'd like to get it recorded. Somebody then says to Chuck, oh yeah, well, go down to Chess Records and ask for my buddy named Leonard Chess. Leonard Chess, if you're not familiar, is a legend in rock and roll history. The long story short is he was a Jewish immigrant from Poland who came to Chicago when he was young, and he lived in the black neighborhoods with his family. Uh, as he got older, the family opened up a lounge that would have blues and jazz acts play, and eventually he found his way into buying a record label in 1950 with his brother. They named it Chess Records, and they were responsible for signing names like Bo Diddley, Muddy Waters, Etta James, Howlin' Wolf. Yeah, pretty epic stuff. I will dive into this in the future, but at a later date. But for now, back to the Chuck story. So after Muddy tells him to go see Leonard Chess on that Friday night, Chuck was so excited he decided to stay in Chicago until Monday. First thing Monday morning, he got up early and headed straight to Chess Records. He sat across the street just waiting until he saw the first person walk in the door. So as soon as somebody showed up and walked in the door, he hustled across the street and walked in directly after him. And lo and behold, that person was none other than THE Leonard Chess himself. Leonard was immediately impressed by Chuck's self-confidence and how business-like he was. After a brief conversation, Leonard asked Chuck if he had a demo reel on hand. Uh, and Chuck said, of course he had one, which he didn't. Uh, Mr. Chess agreed to give it a listen and he would have availability the following week. So the two men shook hands and Chuck got right back into his car and drove straight home and gathered his little combo band to record demos right away on a cheap home reel-to-reel deck. Before the end of the week, Chuck was back up in Chicago and handed Leonard Chess his demo reel. The first couple songs were some blues style numbers, which were good, but nothing special, uh, nothing that would stand out in the chess crowd. Then a song Chuck had uh, recently wrote called Ida May comes on and Leonard exclaims, this is it. This sounds commercial. And no joke, he said he couldn't believe a black man could sing and play hillbilly songs. The stars were aligned. Leonard agreed he would record the song and booked a recording session for May 21st, 1955. So a few days later, Chuck was back with his band and before signing any contracts, Leonard took the group directly into the studio saying he wanted to get the song down right away. As the studio engineers got into place and uh, rehearsed with the band on how the recording would go down, Chuck said he tried to remain professional but was so nervous and green as a cucumber. Before they hit record, Leonard stopped everything and said he didn't like the title Ida May. He thought it sounded too rural. Uh, so everyone in the room sat around for a minute just scratching their heads wondering what they could change it to. As legend has it, someone saw Maybelline, the cosmetic uh, company ad, and exclaimed, let's just name it Maybelline for Christ's sake. 
and the group agreed. They all thought it sounded commercial enough, so why the hell not? With the new title, they went straight into recording it, and after 36 takes, 36 takes, yes, they got the song down and the rest is history, as they say. The next song up was Wee Wee Hours, followed by 30 Days, You Can't Catch Me, and No Money Down. All songs Chuck had just recently wrote uh, in the brief anticipation for this session. Here's a clip of Chuck uh, taken from a documentary called The Original King of Rock and Roll by John Brewer. He evidently liked it because he told me to go back and get the band and come up and he'd consider a contract, a recording contract. I said, when? Yesterday? So the next uh, Friday, I think, we went up there. And Saturday, we recorded Maybelline, Wee Wee Hours, Too Much Monkey. By the way, I had these songs written over during that week. Too Much Monkey Business, and I think Roll Over Beethoven. And uh, we did all four of them in, what, less, less than six hours. Maybelline had 36 takes, by the way. The documentary actually came out shortly after my first episode aired. The rest of the movie is eye-opening, and it's a fairly short, easy watch. I highly recommend it. The director, John Brewer, also gave an interview around that time that goes deep into the kind of guy that Chuck Berry was in his private life that I definitely recommend you check out. Uh, I'll have that all linked on our website, www.rockandrollhistory.com. So yeah, all these songs they put down were amazing. But the real standout here is Maybelline. Not only because it itself is a great song, and not only because it is the first time a rock and roll song by Chuck Berry was recorded, but because it's the first instance, in my opinion, where all the ingredients are mixed together into the official formula of rock and roll for the very first time. Uh, rhythm and blues with that guitar up front and the singer lamenting about a young man's woes of the day in the funnest way possible. It had everything. And as fate would have it, that track found its way into the hands of our old friend, Mr. Alan Moodendog Freed. Uh, you may remember him from back in episode three. We won't get into all the piano stuff again today, but go back and listen to that episode if you need a refresher. So Alan Friedman should take the song to the mainstream and get it spread across the airwaves like a wildfire. Some say this was the very instant that the concept of a teenager was born. Black kids, white kids, older kids, younger kids, they all bought this record. It was the first crossover hit to really catch on and it had just a massive impact. So of course, Chuck and his band were brought back into the studio and they laid out another nuke of a recording session. This included Roll Over Beethoven, Too Much Monkey Business, Brown Eyed Handsome Man, Drifting Heart, all songs Chuck had wrote immediately after the first session. He had all that excitement just still coursing through his veins. Then in 1956, Chuck Berry's first album was released. Uh, he then appeared in the movie Rock, Rock, Rock. Then next came back in the USA, School Days, you know, Ring, Ring, Goes the Bell, and Rock and Roll Music. It was hit after hit after hit, and Rock and Roll was alive! Alive! It's alive! And so now here we are. Sometime between December 29th, 1957 and January 6th, 1958, outside of a recording studio. These next few recording sessions were not documented very well, so it's not clear who played on what uh, and where the, the sessions were actually recorded. So it's kind of a jumbled mix-up of multiple sessions. Music historians are still arguing about this today. 
Uh, and if that kind of detail is something you want to nerd out on, I will have the link posted on my website. It's this website by this guy named Dietmar Rudolph, uh, and he goes down a rabbit hole for us. He lays it all out as clear as possible so everyone can make up their own conclusions. It really is quite fascinating, and I recommend you check it out. But I'll spare the rest of you, and we can just continue on. So the importance of these sessions, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and everyone above and in between. These next sessions are where we get... Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. So now if you want to follow me across the street, we'll go uh, try to sneak a peek inside this studio and see how things are going. If they took 36 takes for Maybelline, I don't know how many takes this one might be, but we shall see. Okay, so now if we go in through this door here, maybe we can sneak down this hallway. And I think I can hear them. Yes. Let's take a quick listen in. What do you want, Jack? You were making roll over Beethoven on a piano that time. Stay away from that. On the solo, he was making rollover Beethoven. Stay away from that one. Who are you talking Johnny, about? be good. Take three. Oh. Oh, man. Let's leave him to it. Sounds like they got a little bit more work to do. So the song Johnny Bigoo was written while Chuck was on tour in New Orleans in 1958, possibly with the help of his old pal Johnny Johnson, and taking the name from the street he grew up on, Good Avenue. The guitar comes tearing in right away, stabbing itself directly into the heart of music history, cementing the guitar as the official messenger of rock and roll. However, not many know that this riff is actually a tongue-in-cheek play on the opening of Louis Jordan's Ain't That Just Like a Woman from 1946. Let's take a listen to that now to compare. Now, is that stealing? It might sound like it, but no, not quite. Chuck Chuck definitely adds his own flair to it, and I think it's an intentional tip of the hat in my opinion, and adds to the storyline of the little country boy learning to play his guitar like all the greats that have come before him. Another guitar line that this song is derivative of is Strollin' with Bones by T-Bone Walker. This is some awesome guitar playing. Let's take a listen to this one real quick. You can kind of hear them right there. You almost could like bob your head with the string and it feels like Chuck Berry. Right? See, you hear those little flares, you can definitely tell that this is what influenced Chuck Berry. So cool to hear the influencer of the influencer of literally every guitar player after 1956. I mean, check out this part coming up with these stabby, these hook stabs. 
right here. Wait up. I mean, that was like Johnny B. Good right there. There we go. There's the stab. And so it's very clear where he got his style. Now some of you may be asking yourself, is this stealing? Hell, some of you are probably already on Twitter right now shouting from the rooftops, but no, no, the answer is no. All music is derivative. That's what music is. It's sounds and rhythms that have been passed on and shared through generation, through generation, and it morphs and, sh and shapeshifts its way between each person who plays it. If you want to talk about stealing, let me make my argument about how every song ever is derived from some caveman who was grunting for fun, and then all the other cavemen started grunting along, copying him. No, I'm kidding, but you see what I'm getting at. What Chuck did was take all the ingredients of his influences and combine them into, let's say, like a sandwich. And he fed that sandwich to the American youth. And it was such a delicious sandwich that we're still hungry for it to this day. Mm, or maybe Chuck is a berry on the T-bone Louis Jordan bush, and the roots of that bush are made in blues, bebop, and jazz. I mean... I'm sure there are guys before T-Bone and Louie as well who influenced them. And not to mention all the players who were never even recorded. Music is just a torch that has passed. Remember when the Beach Boys ripped off Chuck Berry and everybody was cool with it? And I mean, even our theme song has a little Chuck Berry in it. Let me let you in on a little secret. Learn those bendy guitar stabs, and everybody will think you're an amazing guitar player. That's the secret to rock and roll guitar. I chose Johnny Be Good for this episode because it is the quintessential rock and roll song. While Maybelline might be the bigger archaeological find, you could say, Johnny Be Good has everything that a rock and roll song is made of. And not only the great lyrics, the iconic guitar playing, but also the story. Deep down in Louisiana, a little country boy could play his guitar like a ring and a bell, and one day he might just see his name in lights. Go, go. The Guardian put out an article in 2007 that explains this thoroughly. They say what makes Johnny B. Good such a special cultural artifact is that it's probably the first song ever written about how much money a musician could make by playing guitar. They say no song in the history of rock and roll more jubilantly celebrates the down-market socioeconomic roots of the genre. And this cements the legend of rock and roll, enabling young people from humble circumstances to escape poverty and make a name for themselves. And they're right. It's the rock and roll American dream personified. A song that says doing what you love, following your dreams, has the potential to take you somewhere. It's a song of hope. Chuck also said that he consciously made the decision to change the line in the song, the one that goes, oh my, that little country boy could play. Originally, it was, oh my, that colored boy could play, but Chuck decided to change it last minute right before recording because he didn't want to isolate anyone in his audience. He knew the color didn't matter. It didn't matter if he was colored or if he was striped. He was just a boy, and this mentality is what was responsible for a huge shift in the mentality of the American people and civil rights in the United States as well. 
Chuck Berry's live shows were the very first instances of segregation barriers literally being torn down, and the whole audience would intermingle and just dance and enjoy the music together in pure bliss. Think about how huge that is. Think about Chuck Berry and his rock and roll, the impact that it had on this young generation. It changed the way they thought about one another. I still think even to this day, we can still learn from Chuck Berry, and it's why I think his presence and attitude should still be celebrated today. And that, folks, is why we here at Rock and Roll History proclaim Chuck Berry as the true king of rock and roll. And while Elvis did play a big part in bringing rock and roll to the masses, what many people fail to see is what Elvis really only did was bring rock and roll to the record executives. He made it palatable to them. You don't believe me? Here's Bo Diddley and Little Richard's take on the matter. You know the only song that I ever tried to sing of his mm-hmm. is Maybelline. I get first the Cadillac up on the hill and that. And, and then you, you let it go it, on up here by itself. No, it went. <laughs> we came along, the whole thing changed. All of a sudden we became a no-no. What is this? This is devil music. And uh, so wrong, it was just that people were so slow you were black. to accept change. You was black. Tell him again, will you tell him man again? You was black and they didn't want that black image over their kids. You was a hero. Well, see, but yeah. Your kids was looking up to you and they didn't want their kids looking what up at kids? that white kid. Kid. They didn't want the white kids looking up at this big old greasy black guy uh, 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 out of Georgia, uh, out of Mississippi, or out of Chicago. They want their kids a little smooth white boy looking pretty uh, and, and on duty and and, and, and looking uh, rudy, you know. Uh, and so now here's I'm a on, black guy that's singing and now screaming I'm and beaming and screaming. They said, no, no, no. <laughs> and ain't that the truth? So yes, Elvis was looking pretty and white and gleaming or whatever Richard said so poetically there. And that made the record guys say, this is okay. This is a safe bet to gamble our money on and put records out in the market with. And that's cool and all, and it was a key part in getting a white audience interested in black music in the first place, sure, but that's not valiant enough to be crowned king. The difference in what Chuck Berry did is that he brought rock and roll to everyone, all colors, no one excluded. He wrote songs that were relatable, songs that represented the American experience, the poet laureate. He gave rock and roll directly to us. Through his voice, his dancing, his guitar, he gave it to us, the people, not the record executives. And in turn, that literally changed the world. It is undeniable, and I'll say that every time. And look, guys, I know there's a lot more to unpack with Chuck Berry. A lot more. But we're not getting into any of that today. I'm not shying away from any of that. There will be more Chuck Berry in the future episodes, but today we're focusing on his influence directly on rock and roll and the impact that he had on the world. Is that okay? We good? Look, he's the true king of rock and roll for Christ's sake. Undeniably so. It's the least we can do. Alice Cooper said Chuck Berry is the blueprint of rock and roll. Joe Edwards, owner of Blueberry Hill, claimed Chuck Berry is the man who made the guitar a star. And of course, John Lennon said... Uh, I think he's the greatest. I really love him. It's an honor to be here backing him. That's very lovely. You want to handle this introduction? Yeah. 
If you were to try, to try and give rock and roll another name, you might call it Chuck Berry, right. In the 1950s, a whole generation worshipped his music, and when you see him perform today, past and present all come together, and the message is, hail, hail, rock and roll, right on. Here he is, Chuck Berry! He was the first inductee to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he influenced every single British Invasion band and every band that came after them. And for that, we should be thankful and show our respect, okay? Therefore, I nominate Johnny B. Good as Exhibit A, as the official representation of a dictionary definition of rock and roll, if you will. It has the elements that cemented rock and roll's legacy, and it is a song I believe best represents the genre. And don't forget, Carl Sagan slapped it on a piece of solid gold and launched it into outer space on the Voyager spacecraft to represent mankind, should another life form discover it and want to learn about us as a species. You can't beat that. When you start to think about it like that too, it really puts things into perspective. You know, just how small we are, how insignificant everything really is, how short all of our history has really been. And even in this little blip of existence, even if it's just for a moment, even if it's just for two minutes and 30 seconds, a song about a little country boy bending strings on his guitar, it brings us all together and leaves us putting our differences aside and it lets us enjoy life side by side in pure bliss. And that little song will be floating on through outer space for eternity after we are gone. A song by Chuck Berry, the true king of rock and roll. And so that concludes another episode of Rock and Roll History. Happy New Year, everyone. Let's start this year off right. I'll see you guys next month, but in the meantime, go visit rockandrollhistory.com and interact. Send me a message. Let me know what you're thinking. Cheers, guys, and remember, be kind to each other, and remember to rock and roll!